Good morning! It's Sunday, the 25th day of September, 2016. I've spent three weeks reading and watching stories of the Beast 666, and I still don't know what to make of the man. So today I continue the story to the best of my ability of Aleister Crowley on the 106th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. As the great Bill McNeil once said, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade, and then throw it in the face of the man who gave you the lemons until they give you the oranges you originally asked for. I'd like to apologize to everybody out there for missing last week's show. It was just, um, for lack of a better phrase, a perfect storm of other obligations that got in the way, and, uh between work and some personal home projects. I actually started to record the podcast on Saturday. What was it? Saturday evening, I believe. And it was coming off bad and I didn't like it and I was rushing it. Finally, I determined I wasn't going to finish it and it wasn't good anyway. So best just to skip a week and um, do it better this week. So hopefully it's better this week. Now, as I finish the story of Aleister Crowley, keep in mind that as the story goes on, he was constantly writing books, poetry, painting, putting on plays, and and so much more. He did a tremendous amount of work that I I don't talk about on this podcast. And, uh, And while I still don't know what to make of the man, as Ray Stantz would say, I mean, he was either a certified genius or an authentic wacko. Whether he really viewed himself as a prophet or just wanted to convince the world that he was one, I can't say. He must have been one of those amazing individuals who could charm a person into doing whatever he wanted them to do, no matter how crazy. I've never read a story in which he made anyone do anything against his or her will. Some might say that this is the makings of a good cult leader, right? Was Crowley a cult leader? Yes, no, I can't say. But there's hints of that in the Abbey of Thelema. Anyway, today's story is a bit long, so I'm going to jump right to it. Part 3 of the life of the strange man known as Aleister Crowley. This podcast is part of the PsyCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash PsyCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. The cloud of mystique that shadowed the band grew with the news of Jimmy Page's interest in Aleister Crowley, an early 20th century Englishman aligned with black magic and demonology. Aleister Crowley, by his own preference, liked to be called the Great Beast. Looking out over the grounds of Boleskine House, past the graveyard, one cannot help but wonder if he saw himself as a kind of alter ego to that great beast under the black water. In his strange life, might he not have communed with the monster itself? 
as he claimed to do so often with the raised souls of the dead hovering over the silent stones of the ancient crypts. In 1910, Aleister Crowley, who was now having financial problems and looking for funds, began performing the seven magical rituals of the Rites of Elysis. This was a semi-live performance done at the house at 124 Victoria Street, in which was intended to unite performers and the audience, and to inspire the audience into a religious ecstasy. Tickets were sold for the seven-night event in which each night he would stage one of the seven rites of the classical planets of antiquity. These would be the rite of Saturn, the rite of Jupiter, the rite of Mars, the rite of Sol, or the Sun, the rite of Venus, the rite of Mercury, and the rite of Luna, or the Moon. This would take place from October 19th to November 30th, 1910. People on the stage were dressed in all different color robes, and the audience was seated on cushions on the floor. After a few rituals were performed, Victor Newberg brought out a cup of libations, a brownish liquid, and offered it to the audience. The drink might have included drugs like mescaline or opium. Whether the drink was drugged or not may be up for debate, but it was certain that the performers were definitely taking these mind-altering chemicals. The rites were a reading of poetry and religious ceremonies to summon spirits. At one point, Victor Newberg would dance until he collapsed of exhaustion and would spend the rest of the performance laying on the floor. The night would end up with a young lady, Leela Waddell, who was Crowley's latest scarlet woman, playing the violin. From all accounts, it was a very bizarre night at Alistair's place. It was so successful that Crowley rented a room at Caxton Hall, a large but run-down place, to do the act as a public performance. The show, which had worked so well as a small, intimate performance, did not translate to a larger venue such as Caxton Hall. To make up for this, Crowley performed the rites in complete darkness. Two papers that specialized in scandal, John Bull and the Looking Glass, gave the work a very negative review. These papers used the play as a chance to attack Crowley and his beliefs, thinly disguised as a review of the stage act. The Looking Glass claimed that various scandalous acts were going on up on the stage in the dark and that the audience was being drugged. The editor of the Looking Glass newspaper called Crowley one of the most blasphemous and cold-blooded villains of modern times. He also dragged in some of Crowley's friends, such as Alan Bennett and George Cecil Jones. They suggested that Crowley and Jones were involved in homosexual activities. While Crowley found this amusing, Jones was furious and sued the newspaper for libel. Although Crowley was never charged in the case and was never called to the stand, the trial became more of an examination of him and his life. It seemed that every enemy Crowley had ever made over the years, and there were many, came to testify. The press began to join in on the attack, and, in a way, Crowley had this coming. He had done so much to make himself out as the bad boy over the years that it was only a matter of time before it caught up with him. When the trial was over, Jones had lost the case and his friendship with Crowley was over. 
Many accused Crowley of not standing by the side of his friend during the trial, and this caused many people to leave the Argentium Astrum. It was also around this time that Victor Newberg had fallen in love with a woman, and that caused great jealousy in Crowley. Later, after the woman committed suicide, Newberg blamed Crowley, and their friendship was over. From this point on, and probably for the rest of his life, Aleister Crowley and the rumors about the stuff he was into was a common feature in the press. It was about this time he began to be known as the wickedest man in the world. Due to the publicity of the trial, many occult groups began to take an interest in Crowley. One of these was the Ordo Templi Orientis, the international fraternal and religious organization founded at the beginning of the 20th century. This is where Crowley would begin his experiments with sexual magic. Over the next few years, Aleister Crowley would quickly move up the ranks of the OTO. Within a year, he would begin to rewrite many of the OTO's initiation rituals to incorporate symbolic elements of Thelema. In Paris, Crowley met Mary de Sturgis. At this time, Crowley had had his eye teeth or canine teeth filed down to points, and when he kissed her hand, he was able to draw blood. Even though Mary was married to an American stockbroker, Salman Sturgis, she would become his next scarlet woman. By the middle of November 1911, the two had become sexual and magical partners, at a certain point, after a, a lot of alcohol, Mary began to be contacted by a spirit, an old man with a long white beard and a magical wand named Abuldas. He commanded Crowley to write something called Book Four. They spent 11 days in a Paris hotel and performed a series of rites in which Crowley encouraged Mary, under the effects of sexual exhaustion and narcotics, to have visions. Mary provided Crowley with a series of messages in which he used to write the mysterious book for. This would end up being considered Crowley's magnum opus, Libra Abra. After that, the two rented a villa in Italy and they began, with Mary at the typewriter, creating the first section of magic in theory and practice, often considered one of Crowley's master works. At one point, Mary's teenage son, Preston, who had just finished a school term, joined the couple in the villa. Crowley and the boy did not get along, and Alistair referred to him as the brat, and also described him as a god-forsaken lout. Preston would have nothing but bad memories of Crowley, and would only remember him as the man who encouraged his mother into alcoholism and drug abuse. Preston Sturgis would go on to become one of Hollywood's biggest writers and directors of the 1930s. He would later say, The practitioner and staunch defender of every form of vice historically known to man, generally accepted as one of the most depraved, vicious, and revolting humbugs who ever escaped from a nightmare or lunatic asylum, universally despised and enthusiastically expelled from every country he had ever tried to live in, Mr. Crowley, nevertheless, was considered by my mother not only to be the epitome of charm and good manners, but also the possessor of one of the few genius-bathed brains she had the privilege to observe at work during her entire lifetime. Ask me not why. He also said, 
Reading about some of the subsequent exploits, I realized that my mother and I were lucky to escape with our lives. If I had been a little older, he might not have escaped with his. Whether it was due to Preston or not, Mary and Alistair's relationship soon turned sour in the two parted ways. It was about this time that his divorce from Rose became official. Rose had inherited a good deal of money from the death of her first husband, so Alistair set up a trust fund for both himself and his daughter, Lola Zaza. And for a time, he was the tour manager for Leela Wydell's vaudeville group, The Ragged Ragtime Girls. In October of 1914, Crowley traveled to America. This is about the time that many have questioned Crowley's involvement with the Germans during World War I. He became involved with the New York's pro-German movement, and in January of 1915, German spy George Sylvester Verick employed him as a writer for his propagandist newspaper, The Fatherland, which was dedicated to keeping the U.S. neutral in the conflict. Many have wondered why Crowley never got in trouble for this. In fact, it came to light in later years that the American authorities wanted to arrest him. It seems that Crowley was working as a sort of double agent, or at least thought he was, with the knowledge and consent of the British government to, to infiltrate and undermine Germany's operation in New York. Other sources say he attempted to offer his services to the British government, but was turned down. The truth is, it's actually unclear whether he was actually working for the British or just thought he was. Crowley would later say that the propaganda he was writing for the pro-German papers, the Fatherland and the International, was done to intentionally write such absurd nonsense that it made the German cause look ridiculous. Crowley traveled across America, traveling to Detroit, Chicago, up to Canada, over to California, New Orleans, Florida, and then back to New York. By 1915, Crowley was really hurting for money, but luckily he began getting published in the American edition of Vanity Fair and undertook freelance work for the famed astrologer Evangeline Adams. In New York, he continued to experiment with his sex magic, as he wrote in his diaries, through the use of masturbation, female prostitutes, and male clients of a Turkish bathhouse. He also, in an attempt to make money, began selling a new card game he invented called Pirate Bridge. Various scarlet women came and went as time went on. One such woman was Anne Catherine Miller, who he nicknamed The Dog, based on her resemblance to Anubis, the dog-headed Egyptian god of the dead. He met her during the summer of 1917, and through her met his next scarlet woman, Roddy Minor, a doctor of chemistry. Roddy became much more of a serious love and began to live with him in his New York apartment. The two began a series of sex magic workings. One such working was with the two of them and Crowley's homosexual lover, Walter Gray, an African-American jazz musician. The two sexually mounted Roddy in many various positions while under the influence of hashish and opium. This was all part of Crowley's system to overcome shame and to encourage spiritual visions. On January 14, 1918, in the evening, 
Roddy was smoking opium as Crowley sat writing when she began to cast her mind into the astral plane and began describing what she saw. Crowley first thought this was all nonsense, but eventually things began to make sense. She was contacted by someone she called the wizard, but turned out to be Amalantra. This continued on to the spring in something known as the Amalantra Workings. In late spring, Crowley painted his famous portrait of one of the high masters, known as Lam, which to many appears to be a modern gray alien. You know, the kind with the very large head. Anyway, some have interpreted this as the first connection to the idea of the modern extraterrestrial. Eventually, Roddy Minor and Crowley would go their own ways, but parting as friends. This may have been because he was now taking many partners for his sexual magic experiments. Crowley would continue on with his Amalatro workings with various partners, both men and women. In the spring of 1918, a young schoolteacher, Lee Hersig, visited Crowley's apartment with her sister. Crowley immediately kissed her. He asked if he could paint her, and she said, yes, but paint her as a dead soul. In January 1919, Lee became Crowley's next Scarlet Woman and soon was pregnant with his child. She remained his sex magic partner for the next six years. Now Crowley suffered from asthma and doctors prescribed him heroin, to which he soon became an addict. This addiction he would have for the rest of his life. By 1920, Crowley had had enough of America and its commercialization of spiritualism. Now back in London, he would launch his most ambitious experiment, something that would promote Thelema into a lifestyle. By this time, Lee had given birth to Anna Lee Crowley, which they nicknamed Popeye. In Sicily, he began the Abbey of Thelema, which was in a small house and which was used as a temple and spiritual center. Thelema is the culmination of much of Crowley's writings over the last 10 years, going all the way back to what he and Rose experienced in Egypt in 1904. Which, if you think about it, is strange because it's not too often that a honeymoon turns into a new religion. The basic philosophy of Thelema is, do what you will shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Crowley described the scenario as perfectly happy, my idea of heaven. They wore robes and performed rituals to the sun god Ra at set times during the day, also occasionally performing the Gnostic Mass, and the rest of the day they were left to follow their own interests. Guests would come in and pay Crowley for the privilege of learning under the master. One of these guests was 45-year-old Jane Wolfe, a silent movie star from Hollywood, who had been a longtime admirer of Crowley. When Jane arrived, full of stress and attitude, Crowley sent her off to live in a tent in isolation, with children bringing her bread and water once a day without speaking. After ten days, Jane was allowed to move back into the abbey and would stay there for three years and maintained a lifelong friendship with Crowley as a disciple and friend. Many things have been written about the abbey, like bizarre sex orgies, some with animals, animal sacrifices. Some claim, though probably not true, that children were allowed to see the adults in copulation. 
Both good and bad stories have been written about what went on there, and it's hard to know what is true and what is not. A woman named Mary Butts came to the Abbey with her husband, and after a three-month stay, they left, and she said she had seen Lee attempt to copulate with a goat, which was ritually sacrificed afterwards. Lee, who was covered with goat's blood, asked Mary, What shall I do now? In which Mary said she replied, I'd have a bath if I were you. Lee loved her role as the Scarlet Woman of the Abbey and wrote in her diary, I dedicate myself wholly to the great work. I work for a wickedness. I will kill my heart and I will be shamed before all men. I will freely prostitute my body to all creatures. Crowley's public image was quickly sinking and took another hit when, in 1922, in an effort to raise money, wrote the pulp novel Diary of a Drug Fiend, a work of fiction based on his own experiences with drugs. Written within a month, he dictated the story to Lee at the typewriter, and then it was rushed through the publication process. While it was a minor success, the main characters were based very closely on Mary Butts and her husband, and the two of them were not happy. This might have been what led Mary to say many awful things about her stay at the Abbey. And then there was the tale of Raoul Loveday, a young Oxford graduate. Raoul and his wife, Betty May, moved into the Abbey. Raoul was very devoted to Crowley, but was sick at the time he had moved into the Abbey. Betty May would hate life there. She would later say that Loveday was made to drink the blood of a sacrificed cat and that they were required to cut themselves with razors every time they used the pronoun I. Betty refused, later saying, I spoke exactly as I should whenever I wanted. I believe I threw the razor away. Raoul, however, took the whole thing very seriously, and after a while his whole body was covered with cuts. Raoul died of a liver infection on February 16, 1923, while at the Abbey. Some have blamed the cat's blood, while others say it was because he drank from a polluted stream. But when Mary told her story to the press, Crowley became the villain. John Bull proclaimed Crowley as the wickedest man in the world, and a man we'd like to hang. Of Crowley, the paper said that he spent his time smoking opium in a room which was really a gallery of obscene pictures gathered from all over the world and dismissed Thelema as nothing more than a belief system that sunk to the lowest depths that human depravity can reach. As the attacks continued, and the fact that Crowley was in no financial position to fight back, the fascist government of Mussolini issued a deportation notice and forced him to leave Italy. And without him, the abbey quickly closed. Crowley's reputation never recovered. For the rest of his life, he continued to write and experiment with magic, and women would come and go, and he would have another child, Randall Gar Doherty, who would live until 2002. There's more to Crowley's life after the Abbey of Thelema, but nothing compares to the stories I already told. He would continue to write, have sex magic, and take money to teach. Alistair Crowley died on December 1st, 1947 at the age of 72 of chronic bronchitis. 
Some reports say that he was a broke drug addict and suffering from STDs, while others say that he was financially okay with no health problems. Who knows what to believe? Well, I've been an admirer of Aleister Crowley. I think that uh, I'm carrying on much of the work that uh, he started uh, over 100 years ago, and I think the 60s themselves. You know, Crowley said, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. When I began this story about a month ago, the first thing I did was watch a TV documentary called The Wickedest Man in the World. You can find it all over YouTube. And the impression I got was Aleister Crowley was a very sick, awful, disgusting human being. And then I watched a few other documentaries, read a few books, read other stories, read some of his writings. And I came to realize quickly that it's easy to take a point of view when it comes to Aleister Crowley and and to portray him any way you would like. There's enough information there where if you wanted to make him seem like the most horrible person who ever existed, you could do it. If you want to make him look like a saint who invented his own religion, a new prophet, you could do it. Alistair was uh, a man with many sides. He was definitely brilliant, probably troubled. I'm sure his upbringing had something to do with it. Who knows? I mean, we can only guess at this point. So what I'm trying to say is that if you are interested in Aleister Crowley at all, don't just look at one source or read one story on the internet or even one book. There are quite a few books out there and each one will leave you with a feeling about Aleister Crowley that probably isn't 100% accurate. And we can only guess at this point who this man was and what really went through his mind, and we we will never know. And I say this because there's a lot of bad things written about the man, and and a lot of them, from what I can tell, just aren't true. Anyway, because the story was so long today, let's get right into the ending credits. This show and all the other shows on the Psycon Network are brought to you by people who sponsor us at our Patreon page. If you'd like to feel good about yourself, then just go to psycon.fm for more information about being a subscriber. That's csicon.fm. And of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. And speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. Want to complain or just say hi? Go ahead, send me an email. I always answer them. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the money, and I understand that, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review. Those reviews really help the show. And remember, links to the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network my wife of 32 years for being my wife of 32 years david metzger for designing the coffee with jeff logo kelly rickert for writing and performing the coffee with jeff theme 
And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all of you who repost this on Facebook and Twitter. And again, I apologize for missing last week. Until next week, bye-bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I want some